Once again, through the amazing grace of God, we're His spared monument this side of eternity and are permitted to meet here to worship God in honor of His resurrected Son. As you know, I've been preaching from this book I have on the stand known as the Biblos, the Word of God. You know, the word Bible is not even in this book. It was given to the book by man. Came from the name of the inner bark of the linden tree of the papyrus plant, which grew upon the banks of the Nile. And because they derived paper from that wood, they decided, and the ancient manuscripts were written on paper, they decided to call it the Biblos, the Bible. Within the Bible, it is called the Word of God, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and it is given many names within itself. But we generally refer to it as the Bible and or the Scriptures. And when Paul was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, he, he said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And most of you know that that word inspiration means God breathed from Theonoustos, which means God breathed. And I believe that or I wouldn't be in this pulpit. I believe this word is inspired. I believe it not only tells you your origin, where you came from, it tells you how to live, and it also tells you your destiny. No other book in the world tells you that. Uh, many people have tried to destroy the Bible. Tom Paine tried to destroy it. Hume tried to destroy it. Kellogg tried to destroy it. Atheists, agnostics, free thinkers, modernists have all combined their power to try to destroy the Bible. When Tom Paine wrote his book, This Age of Reason, he predicted it was going to take the place of the Bible. But his book has been gone for a number of years, and you're lucky if you even have a copy of it. The Bible is still the world's bestseller. Someone told me the only book printed more than the Bible is the Sears and Roebuck catalog, and years ago it was given away free. But uh, the Bible is the book of God. Jesus said it will not pass away, and I'm going to bring that out tonight, that uh, the Bible is here to stay. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. And I don't believe there's anyone powerful enough to destroy this book. I take that position. They've tried and tried and tried, and it's still here. Now, they may destroy the Christians who believe in it, but they can't destroy the book. Luke 8, 11, it is the seed of the kingdom. It is the seed of the kingdom. Now... As Mitch said, I've been discussing with you the church. Uh, we talked about the, the word church to begin with, that it's a collective noun, and I, I, w I won't be redundant by going back over that. We, I, I told you the various ways in which the church, the ecclesia, is used in the Bible, at least four different ways, and I'll not go back over that. We discussed last night the authority of the church, how it gets its authority, and that is from the Bible and how God speaks to us by direct command and statement, by necessary inference and apostolic example. Tonight I want to study with you the history of the church from its inception on up to the present time, and I'll have to be rather brief in this because it covers a lot of territory. But I want to start with the statement Jesus made in Matthew 16:18 when he said to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was born in Bethlehem of Judea, who lived uh, that he might save our souls, said he was going to have a church. He said, I will build, I could die meal, from the ground up, 
The church hadn't been built when Jesus was on earth, but he said it's coming, and I believe that. The Lord said, and I want to be a part of his church. I don't want to be part of a man-made church. I want to be a part of the church that Jesus talked about, and the only way you can identify it is by the identifying marks of the Bible. When I started preaching years ago, I would say from the pulpit, ladies and gentlemen, there are 250 distinct denominations among us. Now I have to say there's 1,200. I don't believe these man-made institutions come out of the Bible. They're man-made. And probably if you live and if I live longer, there'll be more than 1,200. People start churches every day, but they're man-made churches. They're not the church Jesus promised to build. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is spoken of as the body of Christ, and he only has one body. And so it is about this church that I want to talk about. Now, in Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus said, There be some of you standing here who will not taste of death until you see the kingdom come with power. The kingdom is the church. Words are used interchangeably. So we find out that the church was going to come during the days of the apostles, at least some of them. And that is going to come with power. And when I turn over to Acts, uh, the first chapter, down verse about 7 and 8, where Jesus is discussing his church, he told them they'd receive power after that the Holy Ghost came upon them. So if I can find out when the Holy Ghost came, I can find out when the power came. And if I can find out when the power came, I can find out when the kingdom or church started. And so in Acts 2, 4, the apostles were baptized are filled with the Holy Ghost on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of the Lord. Therefore, we have the beginning of this church that Jesus promised to build. Peter on that day, as one of the apostles stood up and said, This is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel that should come to pass in the last day, that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. And therefore, Peter said this was the beginning of the last days. And I believe that. I believe we're in the last days now, in the cycle of God. And ladies and gentlemen, may I say unto you that the church had its inception on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 obeyed the gospel and were added to that blood-bought, spirit-filled institution. That was the beginning of the church I want to be a member of. And I believe I'm a member of it. I don't want to be in a man-made church. I want to be in the church, the body of the Lord, the one that started on Pentecost. And the only way that I can know that I'm in it is by the identifying marks revealed in the Word of God. A lady said to me one time, she said, Preacher Hoagland, I am so confused. Said there's over 1,200 churches and I don't know which one of them is right. Said they all preach different doctrines. They all preach different theories. And I am really confused. I said, well, I can alleviate that for you. And she said, how's that? I said, well, you study the Bible. She said, how can I identify the true church? I said, by identifying marks. She said, could you explain that? I said, I'll do it briefly. You find in your Bible a church that's scriptural in name, in faith, in doctrine, in practice, and in organization. And I said, bless your life, you found it. She said, but that means I've got to study the Bible. I said, I'll agree to that. You've got to get your head into the Bible. And if you'll get your head into the Bible and study these identifying marks, when you find a group of people that are doing that, you have found it. 
You know, when Jesus promised to build his church, which I gave you a few moments ago, he said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He didn't use the pronoun them. If the Lord had established several churches, he wouldn't use the singular pronoun. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is a singular pronoun. He only has one. If the Lord had been establishing 1,200, he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against any of them. You know your grammar. And so the church started on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 obeyed the gospel, and that Jerusalem church was the first church. And a little later, they had 5,000 besides the men and women. Therefore, it is usually estimated that that church in Jerusalem had at least ten to 20,000 members. It's a large congregation. It's the only one at that time in existence, really. But upon the stoning of Stephen, a little bit later, the disciples were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the gospel. And these local congregations began to come into existence, like the one at uh, Philippi. The one at Thessalonica, the one at Laodicea, the one at Smyrna. These were local congregations, and that's what impelled Paul to say in Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. Because there were a number of congregations in a given locality. And as I told you the other night, God put all of his organization in the local church. He didn't put it in the church universal. Although the word church is used in the universal sense. You remember Alice the other night? But that's not where he put his organization. He put it in the local church where elders who are qualified are to be put in, and deacons and evangelists and members. And when you read of the seven churches of Asia, and when you read of the uh, different uh, congregations like the church at Corinth and the church here in Georgia, they were just local congregations of the church of Christ. That's why he said the churches of Christ salute you. He didn't name some denomination and say the the so-and-so of this church salute you. He said, the church of Christ salute you. Now, you don't have to be astute to figure that out. Well, what I want to talk about tonight is that these churches came into existence, and they did have some problems. As a matter of fact, the church at Corinth was shot through with the division. But there was no major apostasy at that time. There's a difference in a church having problems and a major apostasy. I want to call your attention to the writing of Paul just before he was led out the Appian Way and died at the hands of Nero Caesar. First Timothy 4, one of the last books he wrote, he said, The Spirit speaketh expressly. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is speaking distinctively, explicitly, through Paul. You see... The Bible, the Bible is an inspired volume in that the Holy Spirit inspired the 40 different men who wrote the Bible. Someone has said that the Bible is made up of uh, revelation plus inspiration, and I believe that to be correct. God revealed this through the Holy Spirit, and then he inspired them to write it down. Now, you mu- some of those men could have received a revelation, but they weren't inspired to tell it. Paul was caught up into the third heaven and saw things unlawful for a man to utter. That's revelation, but God wouldn't let him write it. Therefore, he wasn't inspired to put it down. Are you listening to me? So the Bible is revelation plus what? Inspiration. These men were inspired to write it down in this book. And you have a copy. Thank God. 
and it'll tell you what to do to be saved. Well, these churches started. I named several of them. They were scattered all over the country. All part of the, well, they called the churches of Christ. That's what they were called. And some of them had problems, but they were growing. And they continued to grow. But Paul, in 1 Timothy 4, set his telescopic sights upon the future by inspiration and said, I hate to tell you this, but there's going to be an apostasia in the church. There's going to be a digression. The brethren are going to drift away. They're not going to stay within the confines of the Bible. He said, the Spirit tells me this. He said, they're going to depart from the faith. You can't depart from someplace you've never been. The word faith there is used in the objective sense and means the Word of God, the teaching of the Scripture, the Gospel. He says they're going to drift away from the Bible. The brethren are. The members of the church are going to do this. I know this isn't maybe too encouraging to have to preach a sermon about apostasy, but let's face it, we got to face facts. We've got to tell it like it is. We don't want to get up here and tell a lie. But the church had wonderful growth. The church I'm a member of, it had a wonderful growth for the first hundred years, approximately. John wrote the book of Revelation, known as the Apocalypse, about A.D. 98, somewhere along there. And when John laid down the pen of inspiration, there hasn't been any inspiration uttered since. The Bible, the lids of the Bible were closed. That's it. It's the faith once delivered, according to Jude. And so the Bible ended right there. But Paul had said in the Bible, before it was closed, that an apostasy is coming, and Paul what's going to be a part of that apostasy? Well, let's go back to the text. He said, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed unto seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And he said, They're going to forbid to marry and command to abstain from meat, which God hath created but received with thanksgiving. Now, who is it that forbids to marry? Who is it that tells you you must abstain from certain meats on certain days? Well, it was the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Paul knew by the Spirit that all of this was going to take place in the future in the church. We're talking about the church this week. Tonight we're talking about the church from Pentecost on up to the present time. And so what happened? Well, the Bible was closed, but the brethren started digressing from the teaching of the will of God. Just as the Bible said, deviating from the paths of right and rectitude. About the time Constantine became the ruler, it is said that he was a Christian. Well, you, you have to say that with reservation because the church had already digressed a long ways from the apostolic pattern in the days of Constantine. They began to do things the Bible didn't authorize. Now I want to tell you what it was. You see, the other night, do you remember if you were here that I told you that God speaks to you by direct commands or statements? He speaks to you by necessary inference, and He speaks to you by apostolic example. Do you remember that? I hope you do. I hope you always remember it. I told you the reason we eat the Lord's Supper upon the first day of the week is because Acts 20 and 7, which is an apostolic example that gives us the time element of the supper. You don't have any other scripture that tells you that. 
So when we follow the pattern of the Bible, we observe the Lord's Supper upon the first day of the week, which is known to us as Sunday. Well, there are other apostolic examples in the Bible, too. For example, when elders were placed in the local congregation, they never did put in one elder. In your Bible, every time you read of elders, it's a plurality of elders. For example, Paul, Paul met with the elders of the church at Ephesus at the seacoast town of Miletus. Elders, he didn't meet with the elder. He met with the elders. I challenge you to get your Bible, and I don't have time to go into all the scriptures on elders, but every time you read of elders in the Bible, it's always more than one. That's an apostolic example. But you know what the brethren did? You know what some of my brethren did? They said, it really doesn't matter. I know that the Bible by example says we're to have a plurality, but let's just put one man in the church and call him the bishop. Presto, they did. They called him the bishop. That's their first deviation. That's what Paul was talking about. Deviated. Then they decided to let him not only be a bishop over a local congregation, but over several congregations. And you know what they called him? They called him the Metropolitan Bishop. Check me out in history if you want to. I challenge you. I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to tell it like it is. You can check your history. Someone says, well, you had to leave the Bible because the lids of the Bible were closed. That's right. I have to go to history. But I'll stand behind my guns. They called him the Metropolitan Bishop, and then they decided, well, if we can do that, we can go one step farther, and that's the way brethren do it. Once they open the floodgates, there's no convenient place to stop. Once you start taking the church into digression, where are you going to stop? Who's going to close the gate? So they put one man over all the churches of a city and called him the Metropolitan Bishop. They said, well, let's go a step farther. Let's put one man over all the churches of a nation. They said, well, what do we call him? He says, call him the cardinal. Cardinal. We still have some among us. And we're not talking about red birds. Well, in 606, they said, well, if we've gone that far, and if we could do that and, and uh, uh, just keep putting this man. said, why don't we just put one man over the whole shebang? Why don't we just put one man over the whole thing? They said, well, what will you call him? Call him the pontiff or the pope, which means ruler of all. And so in 606, they got him a pope. Are you listening to me? Are you going to challenge me? Well, I hope you do, but you're going to learn the truth if you do. That's where the Roman Catholic hierarchy came from. It came from my brethren who disrespected the authority of the Bible through apostolic example and plunged the church into the first apostasia. Someone said to me one time, said, Brother Hoagland, what happened to all those churches in the Bible? The, the seven churches of Asia and the church of Jerusalem and the church at Philippi and the church here. Where are they now? Don't you know? They went into digression. You see, if they hadn't apostatized, we'd have still have churches there and they'd be growing by leaps and bounds. Now you know. Where did they go? They're in the Bible. What happened to them? What happened to all those churches? Did you ever think about that? Where'd they go? Why aren't they still in existence? Well, I'll tell you why. 
they left the teaching of the Bible through apostolic examples and plunged the church into the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Well, that brings up a question. Someone said, well, Preacher Hogan, you talk about the Church of Christ, and you talk about being a member of the Church of Christ. Can you folks rattle the chain all the way back to Pentecost? The answer is no, we don't claim to. I can't rattle a chain back there. And I mean by that, find members of the Church of Christ all the way back. You know why I don't have to? Because in Luke 8, 11, Jesus said, The seed of the kingdom is the Word of God, and as long as you've got the Word of God, and people hear it and believe it and obey it, you can start the church. I don't care where it is. Doesn't make any difference where it is. Just get this Bible and preach that old Jerusalem gospel, and when people obey it, they form the nucleus of the church. As far as I know, there wasn't a member of the Church of Christ for thousands and thousands of years from the end of the first century on up to the Restoration. As far as I'm concerned, there was none. Obliterated. But the Word was still here. You remember what I told you when I started this? They can't destroy the Word. They've tried it. They've stomped it. They've burned it. They've done everything under the sun, but it's still here. God sees to that. That's right. I want to tell you something, friend. During, after all of this developed, there was what is known as the Dark Ages. Do you know what the Dark Ages were? Well, it was when the Bible was tacked to the pulpit and the only church in existence was the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And the Inquisition happened along then. You know what the Inquisition was? Well, the Inquisition was that period of time where they tried to force everybody to be in the Catholic Church. And if you didn't, they'd burn you at the stake. They'd whip you. They'd beat you. You can go back in history and they used all manner of torture. I asked a priest one time if they did it and he said, yes, we did. He didn't deny it. Called the Inquisition. Someone said the other day, you can't force religion on anybody. You can't even force the truth on anybody. They're either going to accept it or not. And there's no use in trying to force it on anybody because, first of all, they wouldn't even be converted. Now, we have in the world today, and I'm just going to briefly mention this. We have Mohammedism and... Uh, there are certain groups of those people that believe that they could do what the Catholics did during the Inquisition. Did you, have you read in the paper about that fellow they have over in Iran? And uh, he left the, uh, the Mohammed religion and uh, he became what they call a Christian and they, they got him the death sentence on him? Yeah, it's in the paper. You see it on television. That's what happened during the Inquisition. And that's what some religions will do to you. They try to force you to be. You can't be forced into the church of the Lord. The gospel is God's power to save. And if the gospel doesn't convert you, it uh, wouldn't be in use in us trying to whip you or beat you into it. Because even if we did, you wouldn't be a convert. You don't coerce people in order to uh, make Christians out of them. I don't care what religion you're a part of. But. This Roman Catholic hierarchy went so far that there were some men back there that got 
to studying their Bible like um, like Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther was born, let's see, about a few years before Columbus discovered America. Uh, in 1492, uh, he was born in 1483, I believe, Martin Luther. Just about time Columbus discovered America. Um, he was a monk in the Catholic Church. But he got to studying, and he saw that they were teaching a lot of things incompatible with the teaching of the Bible. And I, I, I admire Martin Luther. I, I don't agree with everything he taught, but I, I have to admire him. He had a lot of spunk. He had a lot of backbone. He wrote his thesis of 95 objections to Roman Catholicism and tacked it on the door of the old Wittenberg church. Tacked it on the door. And they tried him for heresy after they died of worms. They almost killed him. Because they didn't like it. But Martin Luther was telling the truth. There was a lot of false things being advocated. So, what happened? Well, John Calvin was born a little later. I think about, he's about 20 years older than, than Luther. John Calvin also was a part of the Reformation. And uh, the unfortunate thing about Calvin and Luther is that they started back toward Jerusalem, but they got to running so fast that they bypassed Jerusalem where the truth was and, and ran up against the walls of Jericho. They went to an extreme. Uh, they were fighting the ritualistic works of, uh, of Catholicism, which they were right in doing that, all those rituals. But they came up with the doctrine of faith only without doing anything. That's not in the Bible. So they went to extreme. That's where your denomination started, like the Lutheran Church and the Episcopalian Church and all that. Check me out on this. That's where all that started. And after, after that, the, 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 these denominations began to grow. And, of course, we have a lot of them in America today and a lot of them in various parts of the country. Uh, they, they were in existence. Well, after Columbus discovered America in 1492, people brought their religion over to this dear old country of ours known as the good old USA, where you are tonight. And uh, they began to teach, but some of the men who came over here, men like Abner Jones and Barton W. Stone and Alexander Camel and, and uh, Elias Smith and, and several others, they began to see that both Roman Catholicism and denominationalism wasn't following this Bible, and that was known as the Restoration, not the Reformation, but the Restoration. They said, let's speak where the Bible speaks, and be silent where it's silent, unless we can find it authorized in the Bible, let's leave it alone. And so they began to preach the old Jerusalem gospel, people obeyed the gospel, and the church started again. I told you it was preserved in the seed of the kingdom, not in rattling a chain back to Pentecost. That's not necessary. Anytime you preach the gospel and people obey it, you can start a church. I don't care where it is. If you stay with the Bible. Listen to me. Stay with the Bible. And preach only the things on the right word of God. Okay. Churches of the Lord started north of the Mason-Dixon line in our grand land of America. Well, that made us all happy, especially if you love the truth. Men, stalwarts of the faith back there, 
Jacob Priest Jr. and his daddy. Jacob Priest Jr. preached a lot in the state of Missouri. If you read his life, converted a lot of people, baptized a lot of people. Uh, but in about 1849, a little bit before, ominous clouds appeared on the horizon. When they started, when they supported an evangelist, they did exactly what the apostolic pattern says. They sent directly to the evangelist, Philippians 4, 15 and 16, 2 Corinthians 11, 8. Paul said, I robbed other churches taking my salary from them. Churches sent directly to the evangelist. And Philippians 4.15 teaches the same thing, which I went into the other night. They were following the pattern. But some of them got the heebie-jeebies, and they, they said, well, I think there's a better way we can do it. They said, well, what are you talking about? Well, they said, we need to form sort of a society and, and put it under a board of directors. And instead of sending directly to the preacher, let's send through that society and let them take control of the money and then pay the preacher. Called the ACMS, the American Christian Missionary Society. And it split the church of the Lord from ceiling to cellar and drove some of my brethren out in the cold. There's that second apostasy. Someone said, but preacher, how did it start? It started just like the first one. They violated the authority of the Word of God in regard to apostolic examples and split the church in 1849. Are you still listening to me? A lot of my brethren don't know that and they won't preach it, but they can't deny it. Well, what happened was some of the brethren didn't go along with the society. Of course, ten years later, they added the mechanical instrument of music, which they weren't using, which weren't authorized either. Nine times in the New Testament, when you read about singing, it's just singing. They sang praises to the Lord. Paul and Silas, and when they were incarcerated, uh, sang praises to the Lord in Acts 16. And so some of the brethren didn't go along it, but they, they had to move south of the Mason-Dixon line because... Those brethren who believed in the society took over most of the buildings north of the Mason-Dixon line, and so they had to move south down around Nashville, Tennessee, and down to Birmingham, Alabama, and west to the state of Texas and California. And that's the way it was. We built a building in Fort Smith, Arkansas, several years ago, nice building. And a lady by the name of Peel from the local newspaper came out to interview me. She said, Mr. Hoagland, uh, I'm writing an article about your new building and going to put it in the paper. And said, I'm going to ask you some questions if you don't mind. And after she found out about the building, she said, I want to ask you a question. I said, go ahead. I don't know whether I can answer it or not. She said, I do a lot of traveling. She said, I'm not a member of the church of Christ. She said, I'm a member of another church. But she said, I do a lot of traveling. And she said, I noticed north of the Mason-Dixon line, there's a lot of first Christian churches and a lot of Christian churches and first Christian churches. But she said that when I get down around Nashville, Tennessee, and Birmingham, Alabama, I can find the Church of Christ on every corner. She says, why is that? I said, Miss Field, do you really want to know? She said, yeah, I'd like to know. I said, I can tell you. We started north of the Mason-Dixon line, but they stole our meetings and forced us south. And that's why the Church of Christ is in the south more. They took the buildings. Through apostasia. She says, oh, I didn't know that. I said, a lot of my brethren don't know it. But you know it. you got to tell it like it is. I believe in simplicity and I believe in love. But brother, we need some preaching from the pulpit about what caused the church to digress. 
They don't know. That's why, you know, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. And that's true of, of the history of the church. If you don't know you're bound to repeat it. And we have. Well, we started growing again. Church of Christ started growing again in Nashville, Tennessee, Birmingham, Alabama, all the way south of Florida, west of Texas, west of California. Started growing again. And we did fine for the next hundred years. It seems that we run in these hundred year spans. It's about a hundred years when the first apostles started. And then the church started and lasted for a hundred years before the missionary society. Then it lasted for about a hundred years before 1949 when I was a young preacher in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and preaching until the third apostasy took place. I told you I was going to preach on the church past, present, and future. About 1949, I picked up a paper and I began to read and read about, it says, sponsoring church. I thought, what is that? I've never seen a sponsoring church. And I got to reading and I found out what it was. It was some big church that wanted other churches to send them money so that they could send a preacher over to Germany. And the church was out in Lubbock. I never heard of that. I said, where did they find that in the Bible? I said, what's the difference in sending to a sponsoring church and sending to a board of directors? Both of them are violations of the apostolic pattern. I said, I don't believe I can go along with that. But the brethren started it. I'd never read of a sponsoring church, both of them, and nobody else did. It's a new innovation. But did you know a lot of brethren swallowed that hook, line, and sinker? And it split the church from ceiling to cellar, and we're suffering as a result of it right now in Franklin, uh, Tennessee. There are liberal churches all around you that will do almost anything under the name Church of Christ. They'll spend their money for almost anything from from gymnasiums on down. And where do they get that in the Bible? Where do they find that in apostolic times? They spent their money for that. Ladies and gentlemen, they only spent their money for evangelism and to take care of the poor saints and edified themselves, and other than that, they didn't use the church funds for anything. Now, individually, you can do a lot of things that the church can't do out of its treasury. And I told you that from 1 Timothy 5.16. I gave you book, chapter, and verse for that. If any man or woman among you have widows, let them relieve him, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Charging the church means taking it out of the church treasury. And he said, don't do it. Brethren, today will take money out of the church treasury and do anything. It ain't nothing about it. They're not following the pattern of the Word of God. And that's what causes apostasy. Our boys and girls need to be taught. Our boys and girls are growing up in the church and they don't know their right hand from their left because preachers are not telling them. Preachers get into the pulpit and deal on platitudes and little personal things. And ladies and gentlemen, they're not preaching it like it was in apostolic time. They're just not doing it. I'll tell you. Back when the sponsoring church started, 
I was invited several places to churches which were studying the issues and they didn't know which way to go, like in Texarkana, Arkansas, and in Hope, Arkansas, and, and the Corpus Christi, Texas, and I preached all over Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas. I'd go in and speak for five nights on, on why these innovations were wrong, and, and thank God I saved many congregations because some of the brethren listened. And I'm still preaching it. And I'll tell you, my friends, Abraham Lincoln says this country is safe when the country knows the truth. And I want to tell you the church is safe when the church knows the truth. But it's got to know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Okay. We've studied the church from Pentecost through the closing of the Bible, through the Dark Ages, through the Inquisition, through the Reformation, through the Restoration, through the Digression, the first one, and the second one, and now we're up to, right now, 2011. I told you we were going to make it. We're just set in 2011. And I've given you a panoramic view. A panoramic view of the church from its inception. And that's it, brother. I know there's a lot of other things I could have talked about. But in a capsule form, you, you have heard about the church. And you need to teach it to your children. And you need to live it. And you need to stand up for the truth, and you need to know the difference in the truth and error. We have so many people who don't. It's a sad scenario. Well, you've been a good audience.